You know, it's not lost upon me that this final teaching in the book of Hebrews falls on this day. When the sun slipped over the horizon, when you came to the church this evening, the day of atonement came to an abrupt close. For the Jewish person, the day of atonement is the holiest day. It is the day where typically even non-observant Jews will find themselves in synagogue. The day of atonement is typically that day where there is reflection and consideration of all of the sins that you've committed and a deep desire to experience forgiveness on the part of friends and family and people that you've hurt for Jewish people all over their world they're asking and answering the question how can I make sure that my sins are forgiven in a very real sense that's what the book of Hebrews has been about And so in chapter 13, beginning in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, and I quote Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well, pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I've written to you in few words, knowing that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, those from Italy greet you, Grace be with you all. Amen. In the closing verses of Hebrews, the author reminds the readers about just a few things. The final chapter is going to contain some exhortations about love in verses 1 through 6, legalism in verses 9 through 11, leaders in verse 7, verses 17 through 19, and then again in verses 22 through 25. He talks about the lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, we were told to obey spiritual leaders. They watch over our souls. They're accountable to God. They can be grieved and hurt. And now we're told to pray for one another in verse 18. And then again in verse 23. Being perfected by God and the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 21. So the writer concludes with a final benediction and farewell in verses 22 through 25. The writer doesn't simply provide a poetic way of saying goodbye, the end, 
Although there's many, many times when I've been teaching the Bible, when I've said to my wife, look, I I can't come up with a conclusion to save my life. And she says, well, just just say the end. (laughs) And so every once in a while, that's exactly what I'll do. But this particular time, the writer's giving an exhortation of how to live for Jesus in a fallen and a wicked world. And why it matters. And so it begins with pray for each other in verse 18. He says pray for us. For we're confident that we have a good conscience in all things. Desiring to live honorably. The writer asks for prayer. But once again I want to remind you of the context. The context seems to imply that the writer was being criticized. The very fact that he's saying we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Why would he say that? And remember the reason why he would say it is for the 12 chapters that we've been going through for the past several months. And everything that he said in those 12 chapters. And so when we ask the question, who might his critics be? So when he says, we're confident that we have a good conscience, the implication being that someone's going to accuse him of having a bad conscience or that he has decided to live dishonorably. I'm going to suggest to you it's the legalist. I'm going to suggest to you it's the people who are holding on to Judaism for dear life. These are the people who are coercing and manipulating and reminding the Jewish people to return to the temple, to return to the priests, to return to the sacrifices, to to return to the worship methods that have been outlined in the first five books of Moses in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the people who want to return to the old covenant. These are the people who haven't necessarily embraced the new covenant and the eternal covenant. The idea being how could a good Jew have a clear conscience and live honorably if you've abandoned the old covenant? I grew up in a religious tradition that was deeply rooted in my heritage. My father and my grandparents were from the island of Sicily. My grandmother, my grandfather, deeply religious, deeply Catholic. His father and his father's father and his father's father before that father, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic. It was a part of our cultural identity. It was a part of our religious identity. It's deeply, deeply entrenched in our identity. And so I'm somewhat sympathetic and I understand what it's like to grow up in a religious tradition and then all of a sudden ask and answer a different question about what does it mean to have your sins forgiven and on what basis is your sins forgiven? On what basis do you have a right relationship with God? How is your sin made to go away? How can you be a good Jew, have a a clear conscience, and live honorably if you've abandoned Judaism? 
And the writer seems to indicate that in spite of the critics, in spite of the protests, in spite of the accusations that have been made against him, his conscience is clear. His motives are pure. But in spite of that, he asks for prayer. And the reason why that he asks for prayer is because you can imagine, you can imagine how hard it is to grow up in a home or grow up in a world. And then all of a sudden, when you enter into a right relationship with God and Christ, everybody challenges you. Everybody's disappointed in you. Everything is difficult for you. And so he says, pray for us. There are lots of things that can hinder prayer. There's a lot of things that can make prayer difficult. Wrong motives, unconfessed sin, unbelief, pride, robbing God, refusing to submit to biblical teaching, a refusal to forgive or a refusal to be forgiven. You might pray and you might cry out to God, but because there's something wrong, because there's something wrong, sometimes prayers aren't heard. But in this particular instance, when he asks for prayer, he reminds the reader that he has a good conscience. He's living honorably. He isn't apologizing for the first 12 chapters that we've already gone over. And as a matter of fact, in verse 19, he says, but I especially urge you to do this. That I may be restored to you sooner. What? Pray. Why? The writer provides an additional reason for prayer. And that seems to be a reunion. A restoration. He says, I especially urge you to do this that I could be restored to you. Why again does he do it? We can only speculate. Was the writer distant from them? Was he hindered? In coming to them, was he in prison for his faith, for his belief in the Lord Jesus? We don't know, and the text doesn't tell us. We can only speculate. But here's what we don't have to speculate about. We know that prayer changes things. Prayer really works. And again, it isn't a force that you use to manipulate or coerce God to get you to, to get him to do something that he's reluctant to do. Prayer isn't laying hold of God's reluctance. Prayer is cooperating with God in the plans and the purposes that he has in ways that we don't always understand or in ways that we can't always explain. Prayer changes things. Prayer opens up the hard heart. Prayer reveals to a mind that's clouded by lies the reality of the truth of the gospel. And the very fact that the author uses the term, and read it for yourself in verse 19, but I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Even in that statement, there's an implication that it might be sooner and that it might be later. And think about what he's saying. I want to come to you sooner rather than later. 
I want our friendship and fellowship and relationship to be restored as quickly as possible. The things that are keeping us apart from each other, I want to make sure that they go away. And so the implication being that prayer could do exactly that. We know that later, another writer will say that the fervent, effectual prayers of the righteous person avails much, that your willingness to get on your knees and cry out to God and plead with God concerning whatever the broken condition is matters. And that becomes part of the point too. Because he says that I may be restored to you. The implication being the friendship and fellowship has been broken, but it begs yet another question. Has something been broken in your life? Has something been snapped in two or broken that requires restoration? Have you been estranged from someone or something? Pray. Pray and enlist the help of others to pray. Pray. Call the prayer chain. Erwin Lutzer said, the reason we must ask God for things he already intends to give to us is that he wants to teach us dependence, especially our need for himself. One of the most frequently asked questions I get on a regular basis is, if God knows everything about everything, if he knows everything about everything, why should we pray and why should we ask for anything? The Bible already says he knows exactly what we need. And I have to remind them, the purpose of prayer isn't for you to get things from God. The purpose of prayer is the mechanism of friendship and fellowship and relationship with God. Your prayers confess your dependence. The moment that you say, Lord, can you, you are already admitting that you can't. And so it's a fellowship and friendship builder. It's a way to depend upon the true and the living God. Spurgeon said, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. And so we live in a world as Christians where we have a heavenly father, where we've been invited to ask him. The Bible says, ask and seek and knock. So we pray, but we also persevere in Christ and good works. Look what it says in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The writer provides one of the most beautiful and moving benedictions in all of the Bible. That word might be a strange word to you, benediction. It comes from two Latin words, bene, which means good, and dicte, which means to speak. We get the word dictation from it. And so the word benediction is a compound word, which means to say something in blessing. And that's exactly what the writer is doing. The author offers praise and glory to God for his person. Next, he offers praise 
and glory to God for his provision. And finally, he offers praise and glory to God for his power. And that, by the way, can serve as a kind of a template for you. Whenever you decide to praise and glorify God for who he is and what he provides and the great power that he has, then you know you're on the right track. It's addressed to the Lord. Look in verse 20, it says, Now may the God of shalom or peace. How fitting for the Jewish person. How fitting for the Hebrew people. The Lord is known by a number of different names. He is called Yahweh. He is called Elohim. He is called Jehovah. But he's also called the Lord of peace. Now remember, it means the word itself is more than just the absence of conflict. It means the preservation or the return to something that was broken that is now right. The Bible says that you used to be at war with God. And you also used to be at war with each other. But the God of peace shows up and establishes peace and makes peace with you. How fitting. The Jewish God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is the God, according to this writer, who has raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. God is the God of peace, who's made peace with the Jew and peace with the Gentile in Christ. This isn't a peace absent the gospel or absent Christ. Jesus has been brought back from the dead by the God of peace. I love that. Now think about that. The God of peace allows Jesus to die. And the God of peace allows Jesus to return to life. So that the bitter war could end. So that the conflict could cease. Kenneth Wiest comments on this passage. It's a lengthy comment, but it's well worth listening to. He writes, and I quote, The New Testament is called the Eternal One, in contrast to the First Testament, which was of a transitory nature. It was within the sphere of the eternal covenant that Messiah, having died for sinful man, is raised from among those who are dead. He could not be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek if he was not raised from the dead. Sinful man needs a living priest to give life to the believing sinner, not a dead priest merely to pay for his sins. Thus it was provided within the New Testament that the priest who offered himself for sacrifice would be raised from the dead, unquote. Now this becomes so, so very, very important because this is the repeating testimony of the New Testament. Jesus has been brought back to life. Jesus has been brought back to life and because he's alive, he can make good on all of the promises that he's made. Remember on this former day of atonement, the Jew would have to bring sacrifices every year, year after year, to make atonement for their sin. But God brought Jesus back to life to remind everyone that the solution to the problem of sin is permanent. 
eternal. And so in verse 21, look what it says. Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The God of peace brings Jesus back to life. That great shepherd of the sheep. If you go back to verse 20, this is an interesting title, and I just want to point something out to you that you may have overlooked. The Lord Jesus is called the shepherd. You know that. He's also called the good shepherd who dies for the sheep in John chapter 10, verse 11, in Psalm 22. Jesus is called the good shepherd in John 10, 11. He's called the great shepherd who perfects the sheep in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, and also in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He's called the good shepherd and the great shepherd and the chief shepherd who will come for the sheep. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, there is that interesting, interesting passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The high priest of the saints is the shepherd and the helper who works in us, gives us grace and power to live for him and serve him. But when the Bible speaks of him as the shepherd who dies, that's in the past. The shepherd who perfects the sheep, that's in the present. The shepherd who will come for us, that's in the future. The reason why all of this becomes so important is because the testimony of the Bible is that this is the Jesus who is going to take care of you in every single way. And look what it says in verse 21. He makes you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salvation provides the basis for good works. The Bible teaches that there are things only God can do. Only God is the source of grace. Only God is the source of salvation. Only God can make a way for you to be saved. But the Bible isn't silent about things that we can do. As a saved people. The Bible actually talks about two things. Things that God does for us and through us and things that we do based on what God has done for us and through us. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, 
Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Augustine famously said, we do the works, but God works in us the doing of our works. A New Testament writer confirms this by saying, it is God working in you, both to will and do according to his good pleasure. Shakespeare was even aware of this scripture when he wrote, how far that little candle throws his beams, so shines a good deed in a naughty world. That means when all of a sudden God decides to work in you and through you, it's shocking and surprising. What do you mean? You mean God could use someone like you? The answer is yes. You see, the moment that you say what he says, you bring light into a very dark circumstance. William MacDonald writes, quote, There's a curious mingling here of the divine and the human. God equips us with everything good, God works in us what is pleasing in his sight. He does it through Jesus Christ. Then we do his will. In other words, he places the desire in us. He gives us the power to do it. Then we do it. And then he rewards us. Isn't that amazing? Imagine if it were your own child. And you say... I'm going to give you the power to do something and then I'm going, to give, I'm going to give you the ability to do something, the power to do something and then once you do what I've already provided for you to do, I'm going to reward you. And you might be thinking, that doesn't seem like a very good deal. It's an excellent deal because it's God who's doing the work. And the writer repeats the theme of this great letter Make you perfect or make you complete. In other words, all that God is doing is in order to mature you. And so when the Bible uses the term perfection, it doesn't mean perfect in the sense of you are without flaw or without sin or morally perfect. That's not what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, we could translate this word, it's, it's the word katarizo. It means to make perfect or make complete. Here the word speaks of preparation. It's a reference to believers who are being molded or framed or shaped or edified. It's a, it's a word that describes the construction that is taking place inside of your life and your, and your heart that God is at work. And as God is at work, he shapes you, he equips you, he adjusts you, he mends you. Why does he mend you? Because some of you are torn. So God is at work. God is molding, shaping, mending, preparing restoring. So who's the one who furnishes and equips? God. 
Who's the person being equipped? The saint. In chapter 6, verse 1, in the book of Hebrews, we earlier read, let us go on to perfection. The word, remember, was maturity. The writer is basically pleading with the reader, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. So how do we grow? How do we mature? Maturation doesn't come through pretending that we're grown up or striving in our own strength. My beautiful Carolyn sent me a picture of my beautiful Madison. Madison is three years old. She, she sent me a picture and Madison got into mommy's purse and got into mommy's makeup. And Madison put lipstick on her face and she drew on her face because she wanted to have makeup like her mom because she wanted to look like she's grown up. Now, if you're three years old and you put makeup all over your face, does that make you a grown up? Some people say yes. Some people say yes. But it's a revelation of something that's hidden inside of the heart, this desire to grow up and, and to mature. But it's very, very hard to be convincing as a grown-up if you don't put your makeup on in such a way that's socially acceptable. Maturation doesn't come through pretending you're a Christian. And maturation doesn't come through striving in your own strength. Maturation comes when you allow God through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to grow you up by the power of the word of God. You see, this is the reason why we get together and this is why we meet and this is why we open up our Bible because the truth is, just like when you sit your child at the table and the child doesn't want to eat what's right for them, they don't want to eat what's good for them, but the parent knows with each meal and which each day that passes, you're one day older, you're one day a little bit more mature. Warren Wearsby rightly said, quote, God cannot work through us until he first works in us and then he works through us by his word unquote and that's exactly right we're saved by grace we're saved by faith we're saved by Jesus but the faith that justifies and the grace that saves is a grace and a faith that never remains by itself. The born-again Christian, the person who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, the person who's been informed by the Word of God, the person who's been empowered by the Holy Spirit is going to want to do some very simple things. And that's to pray for the lost and to encourage people in Christ. And it's to grow up. We pray in faith. We persevere in faith. We persevere and then perform acts of kindness in faith. John Wesley said, do all the good you can 
by all the means that you can, in all the ways that you can, to all the people that you can, in all the places you can, for as long as you can. And he was right. He gives a few final pleas. Look what it says in verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, hear the word of exhortation. For I've written to you in a few words. I know what you're thinking. 13 chapters? I'd hate to see what a, lo what, what a lot of words would look like. He's appealing to the reader. I want you to think about what you're reading. Based on every chapter in the book of Hebrews. The writer appeals to the reader to bear with the word of exhortation. What in the world does this mean? He's basically saying, receive the message with an open heart and with an open mind. That's what it means to bear something. When someone says, bear each other's burdens, you're holding something up. He's saying, I want you to have an open heart and I want you to have an open mind. Why is this important? Remember who he's writing to, Jewish people. What is the danger? They're going to return to Judaism. What else? Because some will resist and even reject sound doctrine. What is the doctrine? That Jesus is superior to everything and everyone. What doctrine is he talking about? He's talking about the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's also talking about the great doctrine of what we're, what I introduced to you on this, the end of the day of atonement. And that is, how do you make your sin go away forever? How do you make the guilt go away forever? How do you make the punishment and the consequences for sin, at least when it comes to heaven, go away forever? The writer must have anticipated more criticism and opposition from those who insisted that salvation required way more than just simple trust in Jesus, way more than faith in the Lord Jesus. Remember what he has done throughout the book. Once again, we repeat that exhortation. The exhortation, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. What, what does that word mean? exhortation mean? It means to plead with someone about something, particularly if they're going in the wrong direction. The exhortation that has been made in the book of Hebrews to the Jewish people, remember the exhortation? I'm a Jew. I'm being persecuted. I'm being abused. I'm being isolated. I'm being mistreated. Everything that could go wrong has go wrong. And there, there, a person was toying with the thought, why in the world should I continue to be a Christian when being a Jew was so much easier? The exhortation, don't abandon Christ. Don't give up on Christ. Don't ignore Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus. Don't run away from Jesus. Fierce persecution threatened their lives. The exhortation has been, 
persevere through suffering, go through the hardship, understand that the persecution is going to take place. Yes, it's true that you're going to experience temptation, suffering, hardship, persecution, temptation. But don't abandon your faith. Don't give up. Don't walk away from Jesus. The writer of Hebrews has written persuasively about the supremacy and superiority of Jesus. Remember what we've learned. Jesus is superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior to priests in chapters 1 through 7. Jesus is a superior high priest. We have a superior tabernacle in heaven. That means we don't have a church or a temple here on the earth. We have a tabernacle in heaven where God lives and Jesus is the king in chapter 9. We have a superior sacrifice in Christ chapter 9 verse 13 and chapter 10 all the way to the end of verse 18. Now again remember remember what we've learned. In the Levitical sacrifice there were burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings. And the writer of Hebrews says there is one offering that is a satisfying offering that will fulfill all offering. In that context, the author says, persevere, be faithful, exercise discipline. Jesus is the fulfillment of every single promise that God preceded him. Jesus is better than angels, chapters 1 and 2, Moses, chapter 3, Joshua, chapter 4, Aaron, chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. So what does the cross of Calvary provide? It provides everything. The sacrifice of Jesus provides everything. What is it that you need? Hope, there's hope in Jesus. What is it that you need? Forgiveness, there's, there's forgiveness in Jesus. What does the cross of Calvary provide? The writer of Hebrews says, a better hope, chapter 7, verse 19. A better covenant, chapter 7, verse 22. A better promise, chapter 8, verse 6. A better sacrifice, chapter 9, verse 23. A better possession, chapter 10, verse 34. A better country, chapter 11, verse 16. A better resurrection, 1135. A better provision, 1140. And since we have a better mediator, since we have better promises, since we have a better homeland, since we have better possessions, since the best that Judaism can offer is never going to be better than Jesus. Why would you return to that? And you, you might think, I, I'm not in danger of returning to Judaism. Well, if for you, it might be Hinduism, or, or it might be Buddhism, or it might be Catholicism, or it might be atheism, or agnosticism, or skepticism. What is it that you want to return to? Does the darkness appeal to you? Does jail appeal to you? Does addictions appeal to you? What is it that you think that you need? What is it that you think that you need that will be the satisfying solution to every problem that you have inside of your heart? And if you come up with an answer other than Jesus then you've missed the point of the passage. 
The writer of Hebrews has appealed to the reader's conscience. He's appealed to their intellect. He's appealed to their emotion. He's appealed to their will. He's warned them about the horrors of apostasy and the bright hope of heaven. He, he hasn't been insensitive to suffering and persecution, but rather he said, do, for the person who's saying, don't you understand I'm hurt? Don't you understand I'm in pain? Don't you understand I'm being persecuted and suffering? And the writer of Hebrews says, I'm well, well aware of all that you're going through. And then he invites them to consider it all in relationship to the glorious the glorious acquisition of knowing and loving God through Jesus Christ and every glory that awaits us in heaven. He invites us to say, I'm not here to tell you that these aren't hard times and difficult times, but I'm here to tell you that in spite of how hard it is and how difficult it is, it is truly nothing compared to the wonderful rewards that await you in Christ. He's also said that we have assurance of an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation, an eternal covenant, an eternal inheritance. He's reminded them that with these special privileges some special responsibilities. This might come as a shock to you. The writer of Hebrews suggests that more is expected of us than those who lived under the law. More is expected of us. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What do you mean? Did the Old Testament law require you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength? It did. Did the Old Testament law require you to love your neighbor as yourself? It did. Did the Old Testament law require you to hate what is evil and love what is good? It did. Did the Old Testament law warn you about consequences of failing to obey God? It did. So on what basis do we love and on what basis do we obey? What becomes the motivation? Is it fear of failure and disappointment or are we motivated out of a sense of gratitude and love for a savior who's died for us and who has set us free? And so the writer of Hebrews says in verse 23, Know that our brother Timothy's been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Here, set free means sprung from jail. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure this one out. How many different ways can you say, they just released me? There's a lot of different ways you could say it. But however you say it, it adds up to joy. When he says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, in the text it means set free from prison. We might say released from prison. 
And that's good news. The text doesn't tell us why Timothy is in jail. But simply that he's been set free. By the way, do you think that Timothy was in jail because he robbed the liquor store? Yeah, most of you are laughing because you're going, mm, no, that wouldn't be my first guess. Do you think that he's in jail because armed robbery or assault or, or drug possession? We're not told exactly why he was there. But we have every reason to believe that he was there because of the gospel. Because of his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer asks for prayer for himself and Timothy. Does the writer refer to the Timothy that you and I are familiar with? Is this the, the Timothy who is the companion of Paul? Most Bible scholars say yes. And for those who believe that Paul wrote the epistle to the, the Hebrews, this is sort of icing on their authorial cake or their, their persuasion. And there's lots of good reasons to believe that Paul did, in fact, write this epistle. Can I say with certainty, 100% that Paul wrote this letter? I can't say with 100% certainty. The early church father said, only God knows who wrote this letter. I'm sure somebody knows, but it wouldn't be me. The most important thing about this passage isn't who wrote the letter. Probably the most important thing about this particular passage is it tells us something. Whoever wrote this letter, it was written during the time of the ongoing ministry of Timothy. Because Timothy was alive when he wrote this letter. He'd been imprisoned when he wrote this letter. He was released when he wrote this letter. What else is important is that the temple exists in Jerusalem. The temple is in existence in Jerusalem, which means it had to have been written sometime before 70 AD. If the temple is in Jerusalem, then the sacrifices are taking place in Jerusalem, and the priesthood is taking place in Jerusalem. And again, remember, if you're an observant Jew living in the first century, your whole life is surrounded in that place, in that city, and that temple. He says in verse 24... Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Regards are given to the leaders and regards are given to the saints. Now again, this is something very simple but very true. We're reminded of the courtesies and civilities. The writer is saying, greet the so-called important people and greet the people that other people don't necessarily consider to be all that important. In what sense? He's basically saying, don't shun them, don't snub them. Was the author in Italy when he wrote this note? Maybe. Or maybe there was a group of Italians who happened to be with the author wherever he happened to be. If he happened to be somewhere and there were a bunch of Italian people hanging out, he goes, oh, by the way, the people from Italy go, hey, how you doing? One of two things is true. It was written from Italy or it wasn't. If it wasn't written from Italy, apparently he was surrounded by a bunch of Italian people. 
What in the world does this mean to you? Whatever else it means, it means that Hebrews and Italian people were hanging out with each other. Jew and Roman were, in, were one in Christ. Hebrew, Italian, Jew, Roman, bound together by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes the important part. And it also means that we as Christian, again, are, should be open to exhortation. That we should care about what's going on in the body of Christ. And so when he says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, the implication being as he's writing to this group of people, it is, are you aware, are you aware of what's going on in the lives of other people as God is working through them? You've heard me talk over and over again about the imprisonment of Saeed Abedini, how he's been in prison because in Iran, he took it upon himself to begin an orphanage and to bring the gospel of hope to the Iranian people, and they threw him in jail. You know what I'm hoping to be able to tell you? In the not-too-distant future, I'm hoping to be able to tell you, Nagme, his wife, and his children are rejoicing because he's been set free. That's part of the point. It isn't that you are oblivious to each other's circumstance. Hey, did you know that so-and-so's husband died or so-and-so's wife passed away? Are, are you aware that a person has a problem pregnancy? Are you aware uh, that someone has lost their job? Are you aware? Are you aware of what's going on in each other's lives? Some of you are aware. Some of you are less aware but this is where I would encourage you. This is why getting involved in a small group, a men's group, a women's group, the student ministries group, this is why joining the prayer chain becomes such an important thing. Because as you're on the prayer chain and you go, hey, do you realize that so-and-so's just gone into the hospital? Please pray. Hey, do you, do you realize that someone's in trouble? Please pray. Hey, do you understand what's going on inside of this person's life? Please pray. We greet one another, verse 24. There's no place for division or distance in the body of Christ. We're God's family. We receive and bestow God's grace on, on ourselves and on other people. And the letter ends, look what it says in verse 25. Grace be with you all. Amen. The letter ends with grace. Our friendship and fellowship with God began with grace, and then it continues in grace. John Phillips writes, grace brings us together in the family. Grace keeps us moving in the faith. It's grace. Charles Finney saw maturation as, quote, a state of mind that sees God in everything is evidence of growth and grace and a thankful heart, unquote. Grace is God's undeserved favor, unearned favor, unmerited favor. The Jewish people had a name. They were called the people of God, the chosen people. And it is true. They were chosen to be the stewards of the revelation of God's mercies and God's communication but they were also chosen 
to bring forth the Messiah. And so you're chosen as well. Not to bring forth the Messiah. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been chosen to walk with him. To live in friendship with him and relationship with him and fellowship with him. We end our study with its grand theme. Throughout the book of Hebrews, remember what the writer has said to both Jew and Gentile. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus our great high priest. Consider Jesus when the fires of your heart have grown cold and you're content with mere religion. Consider Jesus when you're thinking about walking away and returning to the jail, returning to the darkness, returning to the addiction. Consider Jesus if you are looking for rest and then all of a sudden you decide that you're going to look elsewhere to try and find rest. Consider Jesus when you're lazy. Consider Jesus when you're not thinking things through. Consider Jesus when you continue in sin and disobedience has overtaken you and you're trying to figure out a way to get back to God. Consider Jesus when the poison of lies has polluted your mind and polluted your heart into thinking that you need something more than Jesus. Consider Jesus as our priest, our divine priest, our redeemer priest, our apostle priest, our eternal priest. When you're looking for a temporary priest, an earthly priest, a fallible priest, a mortal priest. Consider Jesus and draw near to him and believe in him, endure in him. Samuel Rutherford said, quote, in our fluctuations of feelings, it is well to remember that Jesus admits no change in his affections your heart is not the compass that Jesus sails by, unquote. What does that mean? Feelings are fickle. But no matter how you feel, you feel low, you feel high, you feel dark, you feel light, you feel clean, you feel dirty, you feel close, you feel distant. No matter what you feel, Jesus' feelings towards you never change. Because he's the same. Yesterday, today and forever consider Jesus and that ladies and gentlemen concludes the book of Hebrews
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, for the person who has looked away from Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would look back. Lord, I pray that they would consider Jesus. I pray that they would look full in his wonderful face. And I pray like the song that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, Lord. Keep us on track. Thank you that we have an eternal covenant, not temporary, permanent in Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.